When you guys are looking at property management software for your storage facilities, there's a ton of options out there, but no other option compares to Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is going to be your one-stop shop solution that has an amazing amount of tools that you can deploy at your fingertips to maximize the value of your facility, to operate it more efficiently, more effectively. They have an open API where you can back in almost anything you want. You own your data, and it's just an incredible solution. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Link is in the show notes. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, and we are so excited to kick off this week's self-storage income podcast. How's it going, Connor? It's going good, Ben. Going good. Uh, we made a ton of progress here at the company the last few weeks on uh, a lot of these just big initiatives, big pushes that we got going on. Um, as you guys know, you adapt or die, and um, there's a lot of things going on in the storage world and uh, in our world that... Um, you know, we're just in that mode, adapting, tracking information, looking at analytics, looking at our data, making necessary changes and updates. So, no, I'm excited, man. Things are going really, really well. How about you, man? How are yeah. things in your world? You know, it's busy, although it's like on one part of the business, we're really busy. On the other part, it's slow, as everybody knows. So, right, the acquisition front has stalled out. Uh, mainly the reason being is due to the high interest rates. So sellers aren't, we're not even taking deals to the market. So the deal volume on the market is just down so much. Um, and the viable deals on the market too, meaning that um, the, I don't think the market has adjusted. They haven't adjusted to the new reality of storage. And that's really hard when you're talking to owners and they want prices like it was three years ago. And you're like, storage is not not only what it was three years ago, right. but interest rates aren't. You know, it, it, So it, it's this long, like, acquisitions have um, really become very um, long and drawn out. Lots of negotiations um, with the ones that we have. So you know, we're doing a lot of our acquisitions teams doing a lot of off-market deals. You know, we just got our, uh, deal into fund two, which was seller financed, you know, first year interest rate five, then four, then three on year by year three, three percent interest rate locked in. And we only had to put twenty-five percent down. And that's a, that's an eighty-five thousand square foot facility in a city of over, I think, two million people. So this isn't some rando, you know, small owner in a teeny market that nobody's even heard of. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. Right. So the deals that we are getting and that we're locking down are really good, but it's taking way longer to get them done. And it's uh, not as much the volume overall is done. Now, on with that, though, that allows us to work on so much internally, which is mm-hmm. great. So like the, the focus shift, obviously, as you know, over the last four months has turned into like, we grew, we were growing so fast, we we're growing so fast. Everything goes to that, like onboarding that facility. So, I mean, we find it, then we got to do due diligence, then you got to buy it, then you got to onboard it. And that just encompasses all resources. So it's been nice to be able to apply resources elsewhere, which that's been actually really good. It's been good to have a pause in the industry. Now, too, for all the people that listen to this podcast uh, have known, and this is why I've been annoying about it for the last two years, right? As we said, 2023 was not going to be good. 
we were going to have inflation, interest rates were going to go up, and that would have an adverse effect on storage. That's why I wrote the self-storage bubble, whatever that was, a year and a half ago, two years ago now. And we talked about the adverse effects of this climate on not just the storage extrinsic market, the buying and selling of assets and prices, but also the intrinsic. And this is meaning the actual fundamentals, occupancy, cash flow. This is why two years ago, we moved into the markets that we did, which we're still getting and buying in. Um, and we moved out of markets that were particularly susceptible to this kind of environment and getting crushed with things like, uh, you know, drops in occupancies or value. So we, we've been positioning ourselves for the last little while here, last few years, to try to be ready to take advantage because this is the time that you can break out, right? This is the time that sets you apart. This is the time that we can get deals like I just described mm -hmm. in a city of two. Th that deal that I just described would have been impossible for us to get just two years ago. And it would have traded at such a high premium. Mm -hmm. Oh, for um, sure. I mean, it's like, and these deals in these kind of markets are the deals that change your life, your finances. I mean, so for us, it's like, let's go. This is awesome. Uh, quality. More that. More that. hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Yeah. The, you know, the major problem on that, that side though, is just volume. Meaning mm -hmm. that, and I talk about this a lot, how right now, if you're beginning, so if you're starting out or you're a small player, this kind of environment is actually um, beneficial to you. And most people think it's the opposite which I'm like, that's not, it's not true. Because when the market is really good and money is easy, right? I, I use that anal analogy of the scale. Um, I've used it several times, but um, the people that win the game are the ones that can move fast and have the advantage of capital, meaning they can get cheap rates, they can go really quickly and the spread of a cap rate to the cost of their money, that spread is what makes it work and that's how, how they run. Well, if you do not have those advantages, meaning you are not playing at the same cost of capital level, you don't, you can't move quick. You just can't write big checks. You have to go through normal lines. You've got to convince people. You got to get the deal done. You don't have big teams, right? It's hard to play in that environment. And now the advantage is being nimble. It is doing the work. It takes longer to get deals. Well, most people that are playing the capital game, they're just simply moving capital around. They need to move fast. They need to place it. And then when things aren't hitting those marks and everything, they go a different direction. Then they're like, okay, we're going to go to an asset class or something else, right, that has that, and they go there. So that leaves a hole, and the disadvantages to you in the past are now the advantages because the disadvantage you may say well aj yeah but i can't get banks don't want to give money they're definitely not going to give money to me um i ask well okay well how much how much more were they going to give money to you anyways two years ago right yeah, for most okay. people it's like yeah we could have maybe gotten money but we had to do all this stuff so the difference in that problem for you is relatively small because that wasn't an advantage you really had prior yeah really good point point. and the sellers that's a disadvantage for them 
Meaning that if you can't do that for most of these markets, if you're in third, fourth tier markets, you're starting out or you're a seller and you have a 30,000 square foot facility, all the people that have the advantage for money can move quick, all those things, they're not going to you at all. They've now gone back to first tier markets Mm -hmm. and big second tier markets because they can get better deals and um, all that. That means that those sellers, they don't have options. So when you come to them and say, well, I have a problem with the bank, so we need to do seller financing. You need to give me, I, I, I need, you know, three, four months to close because we got to get banks and investors. Things, the sellers are like, okay, now they'll do it because they don't have an option. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that people need to reshape the landscape and really look at the benefits overall and how competitive wise, um, most people that probably listen to this podcast are actually at a little more advantages, I think. Um, we were after uh, 2008. How we constructed deals and how we set up deals allowed us to survive 2008, not get into trouble, not lose assets, not do anything else, and uh, or not have those kind of problems. And then after 2009 to 10, to really start growing through 2009, 10, 11, and then we just kept going from there. Um, but we've set our company up the same way we'd always had it set up. So when there was fluctuations in the market, we would survive, we would be okay. And we could take advantage. Lots of times, some of these bigger companies that grew really fast, um, they have so many issues, they can't take advantage because now they've got all these other problems. Well, that immediately makes them, if, if you're starting out and you didn't have that, you didn't grow rapidly, right? You didn't have those problems, you're at a disadvantage again or you're at an advantage again in this type of market. So Mm -hmm. really important, I think, for people to kind of see, you know, change their viewpoint on it. For us, I mean, think about all the things that you've been able to do and change when we've been able to look microly at the operations and the individual facilities. Because today, when we're talking operations, which we're gonna dive into, and I wanna cover a lot on like what you've done, Connor, and the company and the changes we've made, Um, because we're in an environment how it used to always be. So if you haven't been, if you came into storage after 2016, um, most of the, no, not most, all the storage history prior to that was not like anything after 2016, 17. Um, What happened was our average occupancy soared there was no space. Um, rents always went up. Uh, you didn't really have to do anything at mm-hmm. all. And yeah, the market just, just made you. Cap rates were dropping. Down. I mean, yeah. you just got, by having a pulse, you made money. Prior to that, guys, that's not how it was for us. When we were buying prior to 2008 and into and after 2008, when we're talking 2009, 10, 11, 12, we're we were at 80 percent occupancy like every single tenant to us was gold i mean we fought we fought for those tenants and we got really good at it so we got really good at our value proposition and training the managers and how we you know worked with that and we were buying people that weren't good at that so our spread was really big but that competitive landscape was our advantage. And we built a company 
around operations because we had to. It wasn't given to us. We had to earn every tenant we got. And that was basically 100% of the focus. It was just training and closing de- closing tenants and getting them in the door and that whole process and what we do, keeping them there. And it was maximizing individual tenant lifespan. And I think after 2017, the asset class started to look less like a business and more like a bond. Mm-hmm. You just buy it, it's always full, rents go up and it pays right. you money. And it's like, <laughs> it's not really how it works. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So one of the things that we, that I wanted to look at and go over is last fall, if you're hearing if you're hearing from storage people, the last really eight months have been rough, really hard, um, especially when you're comparing it to anything recent. Um, it's a totally different world. Uh, the competition rates falling instead of going up. Some markets, 30% decrease in street rates, right? Um, The REITs who are experts at revenue maximization even said, we're basically going to be breaking even. And they are incredible at making money even in downturns and low vacancy because what they do with that rate, meaning that they're offsetting vacancy with rate management. And even them, they were like, you know, this hurts. So we had the largest drop in occupancy and um, rates overall in the industry that we've seen since, you know, 2008. And um, that shocked a lot of people. Um, But it also made people have to revisit, look inward. Uh, And so for us, it ended up being like, okay, we're in this new environment. How do we maximize? And what are the things that we can do today to operate competitively, above competitively, in our marketplaces in a new world? Because that's one of the biggest things that's changed. So we operate very differently than we did in the early 2000s and prior to 2015. The game has changed, right? So now we're able to look at the game and say, we have all of these new tools and resources. How do we apply them? And how does that actually make us better off? And um, that's one of the greatest things about these situations. It allows us to solve problems that make us more profitable. And after you go through a phase like this, the changes that you've already put into place within the company and where you're you're moving with our operations company, you know, that is going to yield so much, especially after markets, you know, return and stabilize everything else. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of, I want to kind of talk about what I've done is uh, everybody, what Connor does is I have, he produces for me every week, a look at um, all our assets and then are a lot of our focus areas within those assets um, that have a lot to do with that uh, customer acquisition process. And our relationship between the customer acquisition process um, and our occupancy, right, our rates. And really what we're trying to do is focus on levers that in this environment work really, really good. So to share with you kind of what that means and what you've done, we had one property that we bought 
not stabilized, so it was in fill-up mode. We are filling up during this time, and just three, four weeks ago, it was at um, 55% occupancy, and now it's over 70% occupancy. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, that's because of the busy season, right? But it's not, and we've seen that due to the other assets in that area, meaning that it, the whole area was losing uh, occupancy, rates were coming down. So the market, the localized market, it wasn't on, oh yeah, we're all filling up. No, mm -hmm. that's, it's in fact, that's the opposite of what was happening. So we were able to change that and get that uptick. So do you want to talk a little bit about what it was that you have been doing and working on to really get those kind of changes and fill up and focus area? You want to talk a little bit about that? Definitely. No. Yeah. Like AJ's talking about um, these reports, we've got like weekly and then monthly and we've got our quarterly annual, you know, reports, all those different things built out in a different way. So a lot of these metrics that we can report on a week to week basis, those are things like, you know, how, how many calls are we getting? How fast are we calling those reservations back? How many reservations are we getting? What does occupancy look like? Um, those things are those things that we're tracking. Uh, on a weekly basis, because let's say on a month to month basis, you're tracking occupancy, especially busy season. It by by the time 30 days have gone by and you're looking at that metric again, it you don't have enough time to make yes. adjustments and to affect change and to take advantage of any trends that you're identifying. Um, another thing that we're doing um, is diving in and doing more of a analysis on on the vacancy at these specific facilities where, you know, say we're wanting to to implement more of our lease up strategies and execution there. Um, and we're looking at it on a, a per unit type situation. We're not just saying, hey, overall, our facility is X percent occupied. Um, we need to fill up. Well, well, what types of units are not being occupied? Where's yes. the vacancy at and why? Because that's um, not even. So a lot of people exactly. think that occupancy is occupancy. In fact, mm -hmm. we have a asset, our new asset manager that's in-house that takes all the stuff that uh, Connor's producing and piling it in to share with investors, with the ops team and things like that. It, it, you know, it's interesting because uh, she is total rock star. She came from multifamily. And so what we, coming in, having meetings and sitting down with her and looking at uh, a lot of these things that puzzled her, like, a uh, perfect example is how weird self-storage can even be. And uh, it, it, it's, it's funny because if you look at our lowest ranked facility, as far as occupancy goes, is one that we built, or we didn't build, we bought and it was vacant. We're in fill up mode. And if you look at it on a per square foot rent basis, it's the middle of the pack. And then if you look at one that is 98% full, it is the second to lowest on a per rent, square foot rent. And so I was, I was working with her and I was like, so why do you think that is, right? And, you know, perplexed. Like, I, I don't even, how can that even be, right? Because it was like, well, rents just must be so different. That's the first answer, right? Is the rents for a 10 by 10 and a and a 10 by 20 there are double because it's per square foot rent is almost double than over there. I'm like, nope, maybe a 
10%, differential at best even, but nope. And it was, she's like, that doesn't make sense. Well, the reason being is because one of the, the property that's the lowest, half of the whole entire property is outdoor parking. It's a huge facility, but that outdoor parking craters that rent per square foot. So if you said, okay, if we look at it, take the outdoor parking, let's look at the storage side of this massive facility. And then we look and compare the two, it wildly changes things. Mm -hmm. So types of rental units and spaces in storage, um, they act totally different. And this is why I always say we have customers, right? And we have products. And we you look at it differently because as we've seen, we could have one, we could have a facility that is suffering from uh, lots of vacancy only to find all that vacancy is concentrated in one or two unit sizes, mm-hmm. nothing else. And it's like that skews how you see that market, that skews right. how you see the property. And also realizing then all that increase in marketing efforts that we may be spending, all you're doing is you're spending three times as much to get people in the door that mm-hmm. want a 10 by 20, which you have none to sell. All you have is five by fives, but nobody wants it. Now you're just burning money. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's like, it, this is a perfect example that you mentioned on analyzing that on a actual product basis. For sure, yeah, you gotta figure out the why. And uh, that's it's a bit of common theme, I feel like, the last, the last several weeks, you know, we've got our asset manager from uh, multifamily. We've got some people on our operations team from the hospitality world. Yep. And uh, hotels. I was just having a conversation with them the other day where they're like, man, this, it's just so crazy looking at all this stuff. Cause uh, you know, coming from hospitality with, you know, people on nightly uh, contracts and all these different things, you know, you've got essentially, I mean, especially hospitality where you've got essentially an apartment yeah. complex, but you're like going night to night rentals, yes. right? Like it's, it seems insane uh, from an operations management standpoint. Don't know what your occupancy will be till 12 oh, o'clock at night. Dude, Every yeah. single day. Like it's just wild yeah. to think, you know, operationally on those. And then they come here thinking that, oh man, like easy, easy. you know, it, fell up a, and walk away. <laughs> not a big deal. And then they just, they're just like, I just don't understand. It's yeah. amazing how just that little intricacies and yeah. all the details, but we have, um, we have more differentiators in our customers <laughs> than they do, even though it's quicker. Yeah, no, their, exactly. their customer yeah, profile yeah. is the same basically on every single customer at the thing. Ours mm-hmm. is wildly not yeah all over the map so it's interesting again i mean we talk about this all the time about you know whether it's the development side of things or operations or just working with third-party providers and services in general like get people that understand storage because it's not just some doors with uh, a floor and uh, super easy but no so we've got in all of our reports we were just kind of hitting on some of that we've got our occupancies we've got our move-ins move-outs we've got um, accounts receivable the revenue side of things we got occupancies um, again uh, just more of a deep dive and organize those in a different way to show you know again uh, which facilities which unit types are performing the best and why Uh, we've got our reservations summaries that just outline you know how many reservations were made when they were being getting called back all of those different aspects because that again that customer acquisition process yes. absolutely huge um, the quickest way that you can turn around um, a facility with vacancy is not doubling your ad spend but it is immediately answering the phone when it calls and calling reservations or online leads the moment they come in. Mm -hmm. That will double 
your close rate. That will double the amount of people moving in way faster than doubling your ad spend or marketing budget. No, exactly well. right. Yeah, exactly right. And that additional, and that's a really good point because you're if you're just spending more money to get leads that you're not going to close, you you could have allocated the same amount of money or less money to either bring some a, a function like that in house or something like that. So again, you're looking at uh, resource, resource allocation. Exactly. Very, exactly. And that's been one of so, our big things yep. is. You know, during these times, it's not just about what you do, but it's about obviously how you do it. And mm -hmm. two, how much effort and how much you should place time and everything else. And exactly. little changes like that are wild on the improvement side. And some changes too, you can extrapolate. Meaning that one of the things that Connor's doing is looking at solution bases that allow us to not, it's not a single source solution, meaning it's a solution for this individual facility, but it is a solution that that one solution can be applied overall. Meaning that like he mentioned here, um, changing the way we look at property management, sales, right? You get one person that's the salesperson, bring them in, that one person can do that one function across five facilities. And so all of a sudden you're providing a solution that works way, way better than what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that you have to replicate five times. Mm -hmm. And that goes into performance that is not directly correlated with cost increases. In fact, they're discorrelated because then you're lowering the need for expenses at that same expense at those five facilities. Mm -hmm. So that goes into very much your margin. So you're performing better, but you're doing it way more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a big change. When it comes to designing your self-storage facility, it is so imperative that you capitalize on the square footage and the efficiency of the facility as best as possible. You don't want to have to start redesigning a facility way down the development process. You want it right, right from the get-go. And that is what we're here to help you guys with. Follow the link below in the show notes, get in touch with us, and our in-house architect can start working with you today. Another thing to actually come along the same lines we were talking the other day about, about the decrease in rates, you know, being more competitive. Uh, from a rate standpoint and as those rates have dropped in some of these markets. But then also because people, we were talking both about lowering rates and you worry about how much money you're going to lose in rates, right? But then you also look at how much money you're spending on ads. Yeah. And there's that, that relationship between, well, if we just lower rates, we're not spending all that money on the ads on the other side. Yeah. And it actually ends up evening out. Exactly. So, like there's just a lot of different tools and again, levers that you can use um, to pull, to drive occupancies, to drive revenue. Um, well, one thing that people ask, they're like, oh, so are you lowering rates or raising rates? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. Like, well, uh, well, so on different facilities? No, on the same facility. And I don't understand that. Well, we have in place rents and we have street rents our rent increase schedule on in-place rents stays the same and we keep doing it, but then we're dropping rates for new people coming in as specials, things like that, to mm -hmm. get them in the door. So this allows us those two-sided parts to play with revenue. So like Connor was saying, 
that you look at it, oh, we're just dropping rents, that's just a net loss. Well, not necessarily, because you also have to include the fact that time plays a role in. So if you dropped rates by 15% on one size of unit that was very vacant, so let's say it was 50%, and you dropped uh, uh, 50% occupied, and you dropped that $100 rate to $50, and you got that whole part full, and then six months later, you raised the rents back to, uh, you raised the in-place rents to $100, and you had 20% of the people move out, you just filled up 30% of that occupancy, we're getting paid on it, and your average is no, your your, your weighted average on that rent per square foot, right, is now uh, much, much higher. Mm -hmm. Because it was filled, you got the processing fees, and now the rates, although it took a little time, but you can do it in three months. I know lots of people that do. In a three-month period, they're all back up. Mm -hmm. So you still got the increase you wanted. You were shooting for 80% occupied. You still got it, and you got it at the rate. And if you didn't do that, you may not get to it at all. Exactly. That's the, And that's the thing, again, another one of those big shifts that I think people have had to make over the last few years is that um, revenue revenue management focus, uh, shifting that back to the occupancy focus. You know, we've talked a lot about that internally, and that's, again, you, you can't drive revenues unless you have occupancy. Like occupancy is absolutely key, number one. Um, so the other thing that we've done, uh, just along a lot of these same lines, talking about pulling levers, building, growing occupancy, again, like AJ's talking about that sales process, building processes with your team on the ground, with your facility, you know, managers or specialists, whatever, uh, you know, roles, titles that they have, but making sure that that sales process is very streamlined, very easy. Those reservations are getting calls back um, and you're incentivizing those ground level employees as well. So we've got some bonus structures in place that help really incentivize the callbacks and um, driving that occupancy. And um, that's, I mean, like AJ's talking about here in some of these areas where people have seen occupancy decreasing, we're seeing occupancy increasing and revenues increasing. Yep. And um, it's all due to taking a deep dive into the why and yes. uh, analyzing exactly what we need to do from an operations standpoint. Um, that's improved marketing, you know, across the board. Yeah. We're looking at all of our citations online. We're looking at SEO, SEM, um, pulling all the levers there with ad spend, um, staying very, very competitive there, making sure all of our websites are up and functioning and ready. Uh, we've got all of our, uh, obviously, you know, in this day and age, if you don't have online rentals, uh, you know, capable on your, your website. You're missing you, part of the market. You might as well not even try. Um, yep. So get those online rentals set up. Um, and, and again, just make sure that that rental process is extremely easy for somebody to go through and um, be able to rent and access your facility, integrate the technologies, whatever you got to do. Um, the other thing, the other side of this is you mentioned about the, the competition from an acquisition standpoint is really, really good right now for a lot of people getting into the industry. But the other, the other flip side of that is the competition in a lot of these markets right now from an operations standpoint is extremely difficult. Yes. So like you're talking about, yes. you've got you've got the REITs or you've got larger private owners and operators who have all of these systems in place that somebody makes a reservation, those people are getting a call back immediately. Yes. You, you have people that have integrated technologies to get somebody in a unit accessing the facility, 
putting their stuff in, never talking to a person, yep. human being, going to an office, doing anything. Um, so there is- yeah. You need to know who a, you're competing exactly with. Exactly right. If you're in a market exactly where right. occupancy and rents are going down, you have facilities that are in fill up mode and these facilities with vacancy are larger operators, REITs, and they're really good. Um, you, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot. Self-storage is competitive. Mm -hmm. So you need to know how you're going to compete. And uh, one of the things that you would look at, right, is holes in the competition. And so I, you know, I talk a lot about the unit selection, as Connor mentioned, and these different types of units. And one thing that people don't realize is that you can have units which you monopolize. So you, if you're looking at buying a facility or you have a facility, you may have one type of unit that nobody else has. That is an opportunity that that should be such a premium for you. Why? Because you're not in direct competition with people. So these are low hanging fruits for you to say, all right, I may be competing with somebody that has this really nice facility, right? But they don't have any large drive up units um, it, that are, you know, of a almost like a contractor type size. And that may not exist in that market. Well, now you've found a way to get people in the door. You know how to charge premiums, right? So this idea, guys, of this customer and product and diving super deep into your asset and the products that you offer, what are you offering? How are you competitive? You know, I mean, back to business fundamentals, guys, is why I say it's a business. Do your SWOT analysis in that marketplace. You should know every competitor, all the units they have available, what is their strengths, their weaknesses, what they are offering. And then that's where you put money, resources, and allocate time, right? Now, if you look at a perfect example of this is we have, um, I keep talking about two facilities that we bought that were in fill-up mode because it's the perfect example in times right now because we're not. I'm not telling you about a facility that we had at 95% occupancy and occupancy dropped to 90% and we're doing a really good job. Bringing, no, that's you know that's, a, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about actually <laughs> facilities that we have to work on to fill up. Like we really have, we're in fill-up mode, right? We bought them that way. And so when you look at one of these facilities, um, if you just take, so what, one of the things Connor's done is we're, we're approaching it on a four dimensional viewpoint through data. So line, single points of data can vastly warp the reality of the situation and that warps how you react to it. If you look at um, this one facility we have, you would look at the thing and you would say, okay, in this facility, we've gone three weeks and occupancy hasn't moved, right? And three weeks in a row. And you go, oh, so you're not getting anybody in. So our sales process isn't working or, or something like that. But when you look at the opposite side and do a comparison of our assets, it has the second highest move ins of any facility that we own. Now that seems 100% in contradiction with the last number. So these two ones that are, these two data inputs that are contradictory tell us a lot. Now, when you look at that, what we learn is we are having churn, so we're treading water, but it's more than that. 
this is a perfect example of a facility that may have a couple units that people don't want and then have uh, three or four units that are in high demand. So what happens is that the vacancy is concentrated in units that nobody wants. The occupancy, every time you're having turnover, it's immediately filled it back up so it has high demand. So even though you're having move-ins, the occupancy isn't changing. And even though you have uh, the occupancy isn't cha changing, it doesn't mean that you're not active and having move-ins and having people coming in all the time, right? So now that takes you another level deeper. Now we look at it and say, why? Why are why is this happening? Where are what products are these people moving into, right? The churn that we're having happen. Um, also, is there a good reason or a bad reason? Meaning that the outcome you may say is bad because people are moving out, but that's a reality of storage. People always move out, right? So then the question is, is this abnormal? Is this bad? Is this a controllable something we can change? Well, with this facility, because it was a new fill-up facility that we purchased, the owner had built it a year and a half prior and had gone through the first busy season. This is the first busy season for us owning it, but that first busy season where they got the bulk of their occupancy. Well, that happens to be now about 15 months since they got that bulk of occupancy and filled up. And if you look at our average occupancy, it is around 15 months. So that means we had a starting point where everybody moved in at the same time. It wasn't it wasn't spread across multi-years, so it's this gradual thing. So as we're approaching the time that people are churning, the bulk of it is all around the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So now it's like, okay, are they moving out because something bad happened? Which you can do exit surveys, right? Which we are, and we are actually talking to the tenants things and we found, no, it's just time. They didn't need it anymore, mm -hmm. right? So once again, that tells us way more about how to react. Mm -hmm. And once again, you're running a business, people. So these things are all the things that you know we're doing and looking at. And we've talked to you guys about like immediate things you can do to change. And uh, more importantly, though, I think to Connor's, what Connor was saying is how we look at it, what we look at, because that tells us what needs to change. Every single asset is different. We've given you guys um, like where, how to immediately increase your occupancy without increasing ad spend, um, what numbers to be looking at and going through and how to operationally handle that, all the points that you need to be increasing. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody, the better you know every competitor, your um, facility, why your customers are doing what they are, that will show you what are sometimes just the uh, 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 the problem that isn't just taken care of by a better market. It's not just taken care of by throwing ad spend at it. And you need to be able to adjust because when the market was so tight, tenants took whatever they could get because there was nothing else. So even if they mm -hmm. didn't want those units, they took them. Well, now that it's not tight, the market's actually seeing what customers want and mm -hmm. don't want. Yep. And you may have been very misled for the last three years owning a storage facility that was 90%. Now it's at 65%, only to find out that you had two size of units that the market generally didn't want. And mm -hmm. the moment they had access to ones that they did, they chose them and they won't choose those. So um, a lot of people, I think, are waking up to the reality. And that's... And to, I got to touch on this real quick, everybody. 
This isn't a momentary thing. I talked a lot about the self-storage bubble. I talked about 2023, what, what that would look like. And what it is, is it is a return to normal. We had a bubble because it had expanded past anything normal and was overinflated that it shouldn't have been. We are coming back to normal. So if this is like, oh, this is too scary. I'm not doing deals. I'm running away. I can't handle this right. You're talking about a normal market, everybody. This is how we operated our business every year. How do we fill up? How do we get new customers? Is this market oversaturated? Right? These are all just normal questions that you need to know and 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 be able to answer and figure out in this business and in, in mm -hmm. any normal working functioning economy. I think one of the biggest problems we had is we had so many new people in the last five, six years get into the industry, which, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm one of the major drivers, if not the biggest driver of that, but I, I think it's a good thing and I'm <laughs> trying to get it to, but because of where they ended up in the cycle, a lot of them I think were um, astronomically misled about the realities of the industry operations. And uh, to put it frankly, we all got lazy. Us, everybody got lazy. The problem is a lot of people aren't knowing how to return. Like mm -hmm. they don't know where to go from here. I mean, you have people that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars on the back of an industry that was over 90% full every single year. And they were raising rates at 15 to 20% a year. That's gone. And frankly, that's not a bad thing. That should have never happened. It mm -hmm. was an abnormality. The totally industry artificial. was way, way better functioning like a normal industry. And you should be excited about that, get into it, because that's where more opportunity leads. It cools down. It doesn't get crazy, right? It's It allows us to do more. Yeah, consistency. Yes. You know, and, and again, it allows us to adapt and grow in these different ways, like you're talking about, being able to consolidate things. Um, and Return to the busy season. Exactly. Cycles. Exactly. Cycles, all these good things. No, all good stuff, man. And then just really, you know, empower your teams, empower your yes. teams, empower yourself to really make those decisions to adjust rates if need be. That's another big thing that we just did is we're, we're doing kind of a, a quote unquote, name your price campaign uh, with our management staff um, to really drive that occupancy where, you know, you got customers coming in and saying, oh, well, this you know guy's got a rate over here at X amount. And so we've got like these cheat sheets and all this stuff um, that uh, managers can use to, to adjust rates as and needed. Tim, um, you actually just brought up a good point. Um, so we've talked about it. I, I see a lot of people overreacting, meaning that they're dropping their prices and they're dropping their prices when they didn't need to. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden, they're the only ones that have 10 by 20s that are climate controlled. Their 10 by 20s are 88% full and they see rates going down and everything. And all of a sudden they drop the rates. Of everything. It's like, why? <laughs> why like, so when we yeah. say even like dropping rates, things like that, we're being surgically Street. looking at this, right? Yep. Very yep. much individualized and knowing when to raise rates, when to mm -hmm. drop them and when not to. Exactly, exactly. Another side note, I, I talking about teams, I wanna throw throw a huge shout out to my team um, and everybody that we have here. Uh, without those guys, I would not have the reports here that I'm able to present to AJ and, and, and ownership and go over these things. And uh, I know AJ's said a couple of times that I've put these things together. You know, a lot of it's come from, you know, me helping organize a lot of these things and, and shove the right initiatives, but- uh, He hands them to me. 
Getting those, I'm the delivery man. Uh, getting getting that uh, solid team is is yeah. absolute priority. You know, make sure you guys get good people in your in your corner uh, that can support you, that can that can really help drive these things, um, and just help be that guide. You know, give them the resources they need and get out of their way. You know, um, so wanted to give them a huge shout out. Um, got a huge, awesome, amazing team here. Uh, before we wrap up, we got a few questions from our inner circle group. Uh, which I'm excited to dive into. First, we got one from uh, Scott uh, Gierke. Uh, hey guys, looking for some input on how you would go about this. Property is 200,000, uh, low rents, good potential. Broker disclosed that a new roof is needed for 32,000. The sellers will not change their price. And I was curious if any creative ways, of any creative ways to get this done. A hard money loan, uh, I would assume insurance would be would be hard to get with a bad roof couldn't get uh couldn't the current owners do a claim before it's sold any advice uh yeah all the above i mean a, a claim could potentially be done i mean that would be up to the insurance company obviously to come out and evaluate if there was some kind of storm different things we've done that um and being able to uh, secure some some fun, funds to be able to get some stuff repaired just through insurance claims um but uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, AJ? I mean, yeah. uh, I mean roofing is a huge ticket item. One we've ran into. Item. And two, the you know, it, it's first of all the first thing that makes me nervous. The broker di uh, disclosed the new roof is needed for thirty-two uh, k. Um, I'm sure the broker is amazing, but I'm also sure he's not a roofer. So I would not. Uh, I would not go off that. I would actually have someone and, or I'd have multiple people come out to price that out because his 32 roof may be 200,000 or exactly. maybe 100,000 or <laughs> you know, whatever that is. And yep. that you need to make sure that the, that liability is, yep. and I would have that, you know, that, that can't be just hearsay. Um, and you need to have your own parties because lots of yep. times they'll come back and say, well, yeah, it's 32K to fix this, but this part of the roof is broken causing that right mm -hmm. so um that's the first thing now the second thing is the seller will not uh change it uh their price um now one of the things that um i i would ask is does the seller have options so um we have been told the seller will not change their price um repeatedly and um repeatedly they lowered the price. So this is always an interesting thing to me because it caught us, meaning that we had a property that was $2.4 million and wildly overpriced. And we came back and said, okay, we'll do 2 million. And they're like, he would, he would not ever sell us for a cent under 2 million. And so our team came up with a 2 million price and then when they were going down that road, they're like, it's just not worth $2 million. We cannot buy this for $2 million. So we walked away from the deal. Um, three months later, that property sold for $1.4 million. And if we would have said, no, this is worth $1.4 million, $1.3, we would have ended up buying it for that. But because we were told he will not come off on his price. Missed it. We missed it. And so I, I always want to make sure on that price. Um, other things, hard money loans, yes. Um, I would definitely try to get them. If you're not going to pay for it, force it through your insurance um, because they own that LLC. And they're like, well, our insurance will go up. 
Yeah, but you're selling the property. You're, you're literally going to cancel the policy mm -hmm. of your insurance on your storage facility. Good point there. And so you want to look at it like that. Um, and I would also do, if they're going to sell or financing it, say, okay, well then, if I've got to do this first year, first year and a half, I'm not going to pay um, the the financing part. Yep. So you need to offset it over here. Yeah. So price terms. Ways. Exactly. Price terms. Yep. So look at it. Look at it that way. Exactly. Great right. Question, Scott. No. Yeah. Really good one. Um, yeah. Get those third party reports. That was one of my first thoughts is, I mean, yeah. How many times do you have somebody go out and say, oh yeah, this needs done or that needs done. It's going to cost about that much. And then it ends up being half the cost or triple the cost of yep. what they said it was. So uh, property condition assessments or reports, get those for sure. Um, all right, we've got uh, another Scott. We've got Scott Mundell. Uh, how do you configure the locks on your man doors leading to inside storage pole barn conversion? Um, do you have an electronic key entry? Do you have them unlocked during business hours? Do you have panic hardware inside? Uh, do you have push pull plates and no hand slit? I'd love to hear how you configure hardware on your doors. Thanks. All the above. I mean, we've got a lot of a lot of storage facilities that have man doors that are just open going into you know temperature control areas. We have some that have electronic keypads, those different things. It really, I mean, what do those tenants want? Yeah. And what is what does that make sense Cost at, at your facility? You're building it. You know, is there an ROI on that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, each building so, you could code it to have your own code for the building, so mm -hmm. all tenants share that same code, which gets them into the building. Mm -hmm. um, I like to do something more like that. Say it's an extra security, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you already have security getting into the property and location, you may go, that's overkill. We don't, yep. we don't need that, right? Exactly. Um, uh, so the uh, other thing that you could uh, look at is um, if the building was divided up, maybe making two separate codes or mm -hmm. maybe having different... Uh, abilities for access. So there's a variety of ways to handle that. And that will depend on the security outside, meaning over the whole facility mm -hmm. inside. Um, is this a premium option that you're you're selling that we're saying we are, you know, double secured here. We have extra cameras. You are only one of 20 people that gets access to this. We know every single person, the rest of the facility doesn't, right? So there's ways that you can spin that too to make for a good product offering. Mm -hmm. Good points, love it. Another one from Jake Washburn. Hi everyone, I'm looking to get started in self-storage, been reading books, listening to podcasts, and talking to others who are wholesaling self-storage and a friend who bought his first two facilities. I have 16 residential units, mostly single family. Has anyone sold their residential portfolio to transition to buying to self-storage? Did you sell one at a time or try to maximize the sale price or the whole portfolio and do a 1031? We'd love to hear uh, from others who made the transition or just anyone with words of wisdom. So I, I've talked to a bunch of people that have sold together, rolled it in. I've talked to a bunch of people that have kind of piecemealed from one asset class to another. Um, I think the things that you need to think about is first of all, does that help you or hurt you when it comes to loans, banks? Are the banks gonna look at that? Do you have lots of equity? Can you tap that into a line and not even need to sell? And then you can get that tax free, roll it over. Um, can you do it without selling them? Is that possible? Um, how many of that would you need to sell to get started? Meaning that if you need 500,000, but if you sold them all, you get 1.2 million, unless you have somewhere to allocate that money immediately, 
you might want to hold on, keep the cash flow and the equity rising, right? And then start in stealth storage, get your feet wet, learn, and then your next acquisition, you know more, will be even better, and then allocate it that way. So there's a, a, a few ways that you can look at this um, and do it. Portfolio value, um, I, I've I've seen different scenarios in different markets where portfolio I can't talk portfolio <laughs> value is a, a premium, but other ones that it's not. The reason being is you sell them one at a time. You may be selling it to someone that's a homeowner, meaning that it's in a great neighborhood in a, a great market where people want to be, and they'll drive that price of that individual house up. Mm-hmm. Whereas gotcha. other ones, it's like, sense. no, these are all true, just rental properties. Nobody's buying it that's not rental. It's in a rental area. Well, this is very much more catered to an investor that would like to take them all out in one swath and will pay you a premium for that portfolio. So mm-hmm. a few things yeah. to think about there. Man, I love it. Good answers there. That's all the questions we got for today, man. And anybody want to, to you want to submit your questions, everybody, go join the community. It's our $9.99, 9 bucks. It's a Facebook community. You get all our tools, resources, everything else. Come join us. Be a part of the discussion. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a bunch. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're so excited that we've rolled out our community with over 300-plus members all doing self-storage. That's right. They're buying, they're developing, they're operating, they're managing. And this includes all of our webinars that go into deep underwriting, legal issues, all the things that you need to know to operate your self-storage business, how to find the best deals, how to analyze markets. That includes a due diligence checklist, and our underwriting modeler. So join our community today with over 300 self-storage nerds.